Hey folks, welcome back for a very special episode of the Big Bad Beetle Bros. I'm your host, Cam. Today I'm going to be joined by Aaron and Nick, as usual, but also a very special guest as part of our one-year anniversary celebration that's coming up this June 10th, actually, is the exact date, which will be right about the time that this episode goes public, so we timed it pretty well, I think. This guest is uh, a writer, a producer, a director, specifically director of 21 episodes of the Big Bad Beetleborgs. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Gabe Torres. How are you guys doing today? Doing oh, not well. bad at all. Yeah, doing pretty great. How about you? Good, good. Yeah, just a, a work day here, just working on a new script and uh, taking a break now. And yeah, so it's all, all good. So anything what, you can share or is it uh um not yet no it's uh, it's coming but it is a fantasy uh, uh piece so um uh, it'll be coming shortly it's actually on my imdb in development it's called dragonfall oh very cool okay awesome. so that's that's happening um, very cool um but yeah so so you basically watch an episode and then you do a podcast about each episode and, and move through it yep mm -hmm. yeah so you one now you on uh, Beetleborgs or Beetleborgs Metallics or uh, we're still on season one. We are our next episode that'll come out is uh, the first Shadowborg episode. Oh, so you're you're in okay. So so yeah. So that that's funny because you're you're in the same place these other people who contacted me are too. They want to talk about the the Curse of the Shadowborg movie, which was, um, you know what what grew out of six episodes of Beetleborgs. We shot it as a movie and then they cut it up into um six episodes for air and there were you know i directed three of them and uh i think it was john putch directed three of them and then they just intercut them all to make one direct to vhs movie i think i still have a vhs tape in the closet like a store oh, that's VHS awesome tape. oh nice that's awesome but yeah it was called curse of the shadow Borg. so it was it was you know designed to make make you know multi-use of the content you know air it and right. then unsuspectingly you know sell it as a movie on vhs and every kid would say hey, we want it we want it and then they realize they've, they've seen it already by the time they bought the vhs i guess <laughs> clever marketing though it's uh yeah how much another way to push the toys i was gonna yeah. say how much how much of that I, I, it seems like a lot of creative decisions probably had that kind of a a motive behind them like i mean i know toys weren't as prevalent in uh beetleborgs as they were in say like you know power rangers or something but um was there a lot of pressure from above to like keep toys interesting or like to keep options for that kind of stuff or um the toys were kind of always sort of designed in so yeah you know they were the characters they were the vehicles they were the you know the props the beetle bonders the weaponry so all that stuff was already baked in. So there wasn't really, as long as all that stuff showed up in the episodes and it was all integral to the storylines, there wasn't really like, it wasn't like a product placement type of environment to try and use it. Um, you know, there would be new things constantly introduced mm -hmm. as this Japanese footage would show up that had stuff in it. So we, we had like... Um, sector cycles which were like they introduced some motorcycles at one point that they rode around so we had stunt guys riding these really difficult to drive uh, <laughs> motorcycles you know 
and then uh, you know there were uh, different uh, characters that would come in, like in in um, the Curse of the Shadow Borg in that arc. We had the White Blaster Beetle Borg and the the uh, the Shadow Borg themselves. So those were two new characters, and every new character birthed a toy, except for the the monsters that would go back into the comic book. Only the reoccurring characters would would warrant becoming toys. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was a, a one thing that we've we've kind of noticed going through that uh, even I think the monsters of Hillhurst got one toy uh, kind of a play set, and then they got like a one single release of all the figures. But they, uh, I guess, partially because that's all on the on the American Saban side, a little trickier to market those as toys, I guess. Yeah, I mean, those did. I mean, it was like. The toys were already designed and ready to go and everything by the time the show premiered. And then those those universal spin-off house monsters, you know, the those became popular. And then somebody said, Oh, you should get some toys. And so they they uh, designed and you know manufactured those very late into the first season, I think, if I remember correctly. And there was like a box set of the I have them all in my garage. They would just like send boxes of the stuff over to set and and uh you know give it to us and i would actually get the actors to sign the box of their toy oh that's cool. so i have like, oh, i have like all the beetleborg toys in their boxes autographed on the cardboard of sharpie by each actor oh that's so, that's so neat a, a cool souvenir yeah um, that's, that's about the only things i had and then i do have in my office i have hanging on the wall one Beetleborgs thing, and it's the one of the original printed comic books from the pilot, like the ones they made up, the props. So I framed that. I thought that would be cool, and put that up in the office, and and uh, I put that up on Instagram, and people send me DMs to buy it. Right? So, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, those are uh, those are pretty sought after. I've got one, uh, and I have I have people just from having the podcast on Instagram and stuff, people send me uh, DMs asking if I want to buy more or if I've seen any anywhere, if they popped up on eBay or anything. So they're, they're, I assume there's probably less than a dozen in existence still that are I, I don't around. think they made, I don't, you know, they probably only made five or six to use on set of that, of <laughs> each. You right. know, there were probably maybe 10 different comic books that were printed across the show that, featured in an episode where a new Beetleborgs comic came out and it was a, a hand prop. So um, the, the artist, I, his, his office was next to mine. I can't remember his name, but he was super cool. And he would, you know, be drawing these, these uh, comic books. And, and then I kept one of the props from set. So I don't know if people, you know, color Xerox them or whatever, trying to sell them as originals, but the one I have is actually an original. So you can tell because it's just a, some, you know, random comic book with with the uh the covers replaced with beetleborg so we couldn't actually show the inside of it it would just have the <laughs> yeah it was like it was literally like you know some other comic book inside yeah, yeah and i've seen a couple of those online too that actually just have pictures of the inside and it's a completely different comic book yeah it's just they would just you know buy a regular comic book undo the staples and you know put the, mm -hmm. the printed out beetleborg uh um covers on it and then you'd have to you know the actors like you know just hold it straight up so we don't see inside like, <laughs> yeah um 
So I was wondering, because, uh, you know, Beetleborgs follows the kind of the same uh, formula, I guess, that Saban laid out with Power Rangers and VR Troopers. Was there any difficulty directing a show that had pre-made footage that you had to pipe in? Or, or were there any any kind of unique challenges that that brought in? It was a little strange, um, more so on the writing side than the directing side. And I had ended up writing a few episodes at some point, and you know that the office on the other side of me was the the head writer um and she was she was a wonderful lady and and basically what would happen was the the entire japanese episode would come in you know whatever it was a half hour episode of that show in japan that featured the beetleborgs and the editor in, in post would go through and pluck out um eight to ten minutes or seven to eight minutes of action footage. And then he would build a little um, edit of just, just string out the action footage uh, with time code. Do you know what time code is? Sure. Yeah, it's like you know, numbers running, so it tells you where. So right. the time code window would be on there with these, these half a dozen action scenes. And it would be put onto a VHS tape and then handed to the writer who was gonna write the next episode and say, write an episode and these action scenes have to be uh, in there throughout and then just notate the time code in your script. So you'd have the, the kids run out of the Hillhurst house and they'd stop and look and go, oh no, look, there's a monster coming. And then they'd beetle blast, run off camera and then they'd run into the action scene from the, and then they'd run back out and they'd retransform. So you'd have to find some weird way like like uh, they ride their bikes and they're like, look, there's a monster over in that industrial park. Come on. And then they, they run yeah. the industrial park, wherever this action scene was set, or if it's at the beach, you'd have to figure out a reason for them to be at the beach. So that's that one of my yeah. script. So you'd literally be handed an action scene. And what would happen was those action scenes would then be um, correspond to these giant crates, which would arrive from Japan with the costume for that particular monster. So the criteria would be they have to have the costume, you have to have the clips from the action, and then, you know, the writers all sit around and I'd get in on that and we'd sort of come up with strange storylines to, uh, to explain these monsters. Because you look at the monster and you're like, what is this thing? You know, it's just like <laughs> the craziest. I mean, one time one of them looked like a pig and so we called it the Porcosaurus. Yeah. And it just went crazy. <laughs> I just told the stuntman I was directing, like, just, just go nuts on the table. And just like, and he went like, like cocaine induced psychotic nuts. <laughs> <laughs> scene of, you know, where he's like eating all the food on the table and stuff in this high school or whatever that set was. And, and then there was one that was called, uh, it looked like a giant Venus flytrap. And uh, the monster was called in the script the Venus claptrap. And yes. like standard mm -hmm. practices were like, yeah. Know of that, but you never. I think the kids said the name, and it had to be looped different. But it, it literally—I don't know how old your audience is—but this monster literally looked like a big vagina, and we're like, "How do you, <laughs> how do you shoot this?" You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it was crazy, but there was yeah, it was a very um, surreal show, and I, I do recall at the time, you know, a lot of because um, there were there wasn't a lot of you know stuff on the internet because it was just new. 
you know, you use it for mm-hmm. email and stuff. But I do recall, you know, people hearing from friends that, you know, the audience was not only um, kids, but there were like college age students who were, were coming back from class at three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon and just getting high and watching Beetleborgs. <laughs> and that was like, you know, what? that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like a ton of fun or anything. Like mid 20 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, you know, all, you know, when, when Fantasia was re-released in the late sixties and everybody was dropping acid and watching. Fantasia. Right. Yeah. And same phenomenon. I, I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can definitely see, uh, I mean, even just just the stuff that Flabber gets up to, and just that character alone uh, can take a little inebriation to uh... <laughs> <laughs> fully appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very uh, high energy character for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, as you were talking about kind of the differences in environments, just having to having to hard cut to these, you know, like you said, an industrial park or a beach or a mountain setting or something. Yes, yeah. that's, that's one of my absolute favorite aspects of the show is just you know they're they're all in this tiny town and then all of a sudden oh shoot now we're in a <laughs> I, I don't know I, I just love that yeah I mean we would find ways to I mean I would yeah. go through the script no, to, to transition it and and say and then there was like a nearby city that they went to that wasn't Charterville and I forget what the name yeah. of the city was like urban city or big city or <laughs> anywhere USA go- yeah, right. they would like they would Bring go it. to that city sometimes whenever the environments and the action footage changed. And yeah. I do recall an episode I did where they go looking for the Beetleborg's creator in that city and they go to meet uh um I forget his name. It's not Les. Les was the evil brother. Um, but they go to meet the the actual creator of the Beetleborgs. Yeah. Uh, at his house in this in this city. Um and then he ends up having an evil twin brother or something right. who, who hooks up with the Magnavores. The storylines were ever evolving. That's for right. Sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, they've, they've definitely got like kind of an off the wall, which I guess when you're getting uh, footage and, and costumes in kind of almost at random and, and you know, I'm sure some of them have kind of cultural importance in Japan that just doesn't translate when you, you get them uh, over in the U S and especially when you, you know, the internet's, kind of in its fledgling stage and you can't just look up what this episode was did they uh did the episodes come to you guys um i assume they were just in japanese you guys didn't have any uh subtitles or did you have a translator oh no no they were they were just in japanese and nobody really cared what was going on in them they just took the action scenes out right so i don't yeah. think I ever it was for the footage yeah i don't think i ever watched a full episode i would just get the vhs tape with the the action sequences in and I think the sound was still on it. Uh, there were no subtitles, but it didn't matter because you know they got masks on their faces and we're just going to put... So as a writer, you just have to write the dialogue in and make sure it fit in in that cut. So you, you'd write in the script, you'd say start time code, one minute, three seconds, and then you'd write the dialogue that you were going to put over their faces in that sequence. And then you'll say stop time code, and then that would, you know, when we shot the action scene, the stuntmen in the suits would say those lines for timing, and then they would be replaced uh, in the post-process by the kids' voices. Mm-hmm. The kids would do their ADR. So it'd be dubbed uh, over. Yeah, they would d- do their dubbings, and they were constantly having to be shuffled from set to a little um, recording studio upstairs, you know, at lunch hour or when they had time off or they weren't in school. 
to uh, to record all those uh, those voiceovers, and they got pretty good at it. Yeah, I know. Uh working with kids is always kind of strange when it comes to Hollywood. Uh, did you have any issues outside of what people typically do or was it, I don't know, was it, did you find it difficult working with the kids or were they all pretty? Yeah, I mean, I've always worked really well with kid with child actors and, you know, you, I had nothing to do with the original casting. So I was just sure. this, this group of kids and uh, luckily they were, um, they were green, you know, as most Saban, uh, acting performers were it was a non-union show so there weren't SAG actors mm -hmm. and uh so they were you know many times they were cast off of a a look you know right. and uh mm. the ability to uh to just deliver a line and perform so they were at different levels in their abilities and you know as the the, the show went on you you tried to write to their strengths and weaknesses and give you know not give complicated lines to an actor who you know just wasn't good with complicated lines or you know give the funny stuff to the kid who could deliver it funny and, and you sort of grew to it but the kids sort of went through their own um you know acting boot camp and rose to the occasion and and it's a lot to ask of a you know a 12 year old you know 10 12 year old to do a you know a 10 hour day and be up at five in the morning and you know yeah. you do right. a car and then driven you know from los angeles up to valencia and work all day and then between takes, they have to go, so they'll do 15 minutes on set, and then they got to do 15 minutes of school in a trailer out back. So they're going back and forth. It's really schizophrenic between school and set. And so it's, it's a, you know, it's a challenge and be the kid with the right personality. And in our cast, for the most part, even the guest cast, they, they were, you know, they had great personalities and, you know, my, my, you know, my approach is always to treat them like little adults and not treat them like children because they're on a set working with adults on a, and they're doing a job and, you know, you instill in them a work ethic and make it fun mm -hmm. and, and uh, find that sort of happy medium between fun and, and, uh, and uh, work. And luckily a lot of the, you know, the producers and the creators and everybody, they were very family oriented and had a lot of the kids. And so their kids were always on set and, you know, their kids ended up in the shows and they were always down there. So there's all these, you know, it, it, it sometimes felt like, you know, you were, you know, summer camp counselor for all the kids. <laughs> right. and, um, and, and, and it was, you know, it was a, a fun atmosphere. I think, uh, you know, more so you, you hear all these horror stories of kids and TV shows, but not, you know, the show, the show had a really you know, wonderful set environment for the kids. And, um, you know, it was, it was uh, I think they had some fun and you know, they were working hard and there were tough days and then there were fun days for sure, you know, just like any, any show. Um, but it was a unique uh, setup because we had, there were three main kids. There was, was it Herbie and, and Wes and Shannon. And so each of them had a, an exact double. So there was a, another kid who was their doppelganger and mm. they were dressed exactly the same. And so you would shoot a scene, like let's say you're shooting on Drew, his close up or the, over the shoulder over, you know, you have the back of one kid looking at the other one and that would be the back of the double. And they would act well, the real, well, the real character was in school, his double would do that. And then when you turn the cameras around to shoot in the other direction, the double would go to school and the real character would come out 
And so they would trade places, you know, they would be on their marks and they would learn to just jump in. So if you, their face wasn't on camera, they were in school and their double took their place in the scene. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So you have, and then we could also trade the doubles with second unit. So there would be another, I'd lay out some shots and a second unit director would go out and get shots of them riding their bicycles up to Hillhurst and jumping out and the doubles would do the dialogue in a wide shot they were that good. And then the kids would dub it, the real actors would dub it in later um, so that we could be shooting two scenes at once with the same characters. And since they had those bike helmets on, it was really easy to mask that they weren't exactly the same kids, you know? And at one point, I think one of the doubles started to have his growth spurt and started to get taller. And then it became an issue because like, oh, this kid's way taller than the regular. <laughs> right. <laughs> So that Joe had two actors over the course of the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, did did the second actor was she the double for Shannon in the first place or no no she she was just cast because she doesn't really look much like Shannon so okay uh, yeah she was just cast and then they had to find a double for her because she was a different size and so at some point you know I, I, that that. Uh, you know, that character was switched out with a different actress. And <laughs> so they had to write a, rather than just doing it like the Partridge family did, it's like just one day it was a different kid. Um, yeah. <laughs> they created a very elaborate episode where Flavor casts a spell and turns Joe into a, a different looking kid, but can't get her back. And, but the spell only applies, you know, no one will see her differently except us. And then it's just forgotten about <laughs> after that episode. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, uh... It's it's weird, but it's it's fun that the show made that kind of justification because you you know, like you said, most shows that they'd kind of just switch out actors, especially the older shows, they just kind of switch out kid actors and not you ignore it, don't say anything. I mean, a lot of things do it. The recast of War Machine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess even not even just older shows, the MCU's doing it. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And Game of Thrones did it with several characters, right? You know? showed up with different people and but see, i think it's i think the idea was and the discussion was and i, I was sort of peripherally involved because that wasn't my episode but i think the discussion was kids are very smart and they ask a lot of questions so you want to justify it to them and i'd been involved in several other kids shows during that era and i, I directed land of the lost for abc at that same yeah. time period or a little earlier in the 90s and you know, we would have, we had like a Tyrannosaurus Rex just sidebar that was called Scarface. And he had like an eye that was scarred and had a scar cause because he'd gotten in a fight at some point and he would, you know, menace our, our characters. And they had created all this elaborate, it was all stop motion animation that was then green screened into scenes. And they had, you know, pieces of him like charging and running and, and they would like flip it. They would use it so that he could be used in another scene, this piece where he runs from left to right and then right to left. But of course, the scarred eye would then shift sides when you flip the footage. And so all these kids started writing to ABC asking why Scarface's eye kept changing. And so they banned us from doing that, you know. <laughs> so kids are smart. Yeah. Because yeah. if there's one thing you don't want to do, it's underestimate the intelligence of your audience, even if they're kids. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, the, the creation of the show and Beetleborgs was about you know, kid fantasy fulfillment. Like, what would you want to do if you want a kid? You want to be a superhero. You want to have superpowers. You want to play with monsters. You want cool-ass weapons and vehicles. So they just kept feeding into 
all of those those childhood things. And I think that's why the, the Saban shows were successful is they just fed in, you know, like intravenously, you know, fed these kids exactly what they, they wanted. Yeah, that's, they, it, that kind of t- uh, like speaks to the, the testament of, you know, Power Rangers have been able to go on this whole time and, and keep up with that formula. And obviously, Beetleborgs and VR Troopers and shows like that ran out of uh, footage to to implement over the, you know, by the end of the Metallics. And, and uh, I think actually Japan stopped doing the Metal Heroes shows entirely after uh, the show that Beetleborgs is based on. Um, Juku B-Fighter? Yeah, Juku B-Fighter. Um, was there any, t- there's kind of a rumor in the, in the like fan community that either, um, the house monsters were due for a, a spinoff series or that originally there was going to be uh, a house monster show and, uh, Beetleborgs was going to be part of VR troopers or, uh, have you heard anything about like the possibilities of a spinoff or continuing with the, the house monsters? today? Today? No, no like, uh, uh back when the, when the show was, was oh, going on. Never, never heard anything. All of us moved right on to Mystic Nights. Okay. And Mystic Nights was the next show that we did, but it was different because, like you said, there was no uh, footage. So that show was all original. And it was the brainchild of our producer, Bob Hughes, who came up with... Um, mystic knights which is kind of celtic power rangers right you know and so we went to ireland had lots of great uh tax incentives at that time in the 90s and uh Mm -hmm. he went over to uh ireland to to shoot that show and to make use of all these great locations and sets and and uh the irish countryside and all that and uh um they were using irish directors which was part of the deal and then I got a call and said, hey, the, the, you know, the Irish directors, you know, were, don't really get the whole Saban system and, you know, we're falling behind a little bit. Can you come out and direct the first six episodes of, or like whatever it was like, they did three and they needed them do the next six or so or do a, a bunch of them and let them see how, you know, a Saban set is organized. Cause it was a really weird way to shoot a TV show and I had never worked that way until I got there, but um, they would do what's called clustering. And I've never done it since. Hmm. Um, and you would get three scripts, um, three different episodes, and you would shoot three different episodes simultaneously. So I would build a book with three scripts in it, and then a schedule would be organized. So you would shoot all the scenes from three different episodes in one set. So if you're in the Hillhurst, you know, house in the living room, you do every living room set from three different um, scripts. So this confused the kids, but they got used to it. And they used to figure it out by what their wardrobe was. So they'd run back to their trailers, they'd get into wardrobe and they'd look at their clothes and they go, oh, it's that episode where I'm in this outfit. And they knew, or whatever monster was in the scene with them, they'd figure out. But since they're, characters really don't have any evolution they just keep playing it the same way no matter what episode it is so we would do it would be 11 days to shoot three episodes um and then you would do uh, like eight or nine days on the in the sets on the soundstage and then we would do two days 
out in a little town called Santa Paula to do all the exteriors for three episodes. And that's how I do. So you'd shoot three episodes all at once. And so I'd have these different scripts in a big binder and I'd have to swap between scripts going back and forth and, and you get used to it. But then when they tried to do that in Ireland, it just wasn't, you know, it's not that the Irish directors were, were not, um, you know, capable. It's just, they're used to getting their heads in one episode. You know, it's like, I have one script. And then when you say, okay, you're going to shoot three different scripts. And they're like, what? You know, and, and they're complex <laughs> shows to begin with because you're dealing with a ton of special effects and you're, you're shooting it on film. It was shot on film and we're shifting cameras around and we had 35 millimeter Panavision cameras and then 16 millimeter cameras. So some scenes are shot on 16 millimeter and some are shot on 35 and you have to, keep all that straight because certain scenes had to be shot on 35 millimeter to do the visual effects. So you'd have to have, you'd have to keep swapping out cameras in, in my head, I'd have to keep straight what's a VFX shot and what's going to be a standard shot. If anything's gonna be comped into it, I'd have to use the 35 millimeter camera. And so it was a very complex um, situation, you know, to shoot. Yeah, clustered like that, yeah. So did, did, uh, did it translate pretty well going from Beetleborgs over to Mystic Knights? Yeah, for me, it was just, uh, it was just a grand adventure because, you know, I get a call at like three in the morning. It's like, can you be in Ireland next week? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and here was all these people I'd worked with, you know, a year before on another show and, but they're all in Ireland and show up and we have a great Irish crew and, but all the key people who had been involved in Beetleborgs had, had gone over to Ireland and, lived there for a year or more making whatever it was 60 episodes of, of mystic nights and uh you know they cast uh, all these wonderful actors in ireland and i got there and met the cast and you know it was sort of like the new sheriff in town and and i got them together and said well this is how we're going to do this and you know but they were the difference between that and beetleborgs was when when we got to ireland this these were serious actors because they uh, they cast them all off the Abbey stage in Dublin, you know, oh, and okay. so these were people with you know resumes of BBC serious credits, and, yeah, you know, serious credits. Right. So, you know, and they're all off the stage. So people were, you know, the concern was, are these stage actors really going to be able to um, adapt to all this visual effects stuff and dealing with things that aren't in front of them, and you know, you know, fighting a tennis ball on a C stand, and you know, all the things that required of a of a effects laden show and well um, the you know the dialogue's a little softer and sillier and you know yeah. i mean it's not it's not nearly as intense as doing you know shakespeare or something yeah so. exactly and, and so but they all you know they all rose to the challenge and it was a lot of fun and, and we i found out personally that they were actually better at doing all the uh stuff with effects and pretending there's a monster in front of them or fighting a ghost because you know, you know, film actors are all they want. They want it right in front of them. They want to know what it is, feel it. Stage actors have to pretend all the time. There's yeah, nothing there. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so they were actually better at it. So that became, uh, and I think Mystic Knights was was probably artistically the the pinnacle of Saban. I think it was probably the, you know, from a you know from a production value and script because it, it really was built off of all the old Celtic legends. And it, it kind of walked that fine line of, uh, um, you know, myth, Irish myth, and then having enough Saban 
you know, kind of um, kind of the tropes of uh, tropes of stuff, you know, transformation right. sequence and powers, and but yet it had all these great, you know, wonderful, uh, um, you know, wonderful legends and stuff, and and uh, did very. I mean, they they did episodes that were, you know, um, like the uh, they did one that was like a trial. It was like twelve angry men, you know, in 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 Mystic Nights near the end. I think it was like a budget concern. We don't have can't do a lot of action, so it had to be this sort of. <laughs> The, you know, I think one of the characters was fighting for his life and be accused of something. And but it was a, it was a, I didn't do that one, but it was a, you know it was a fun episode. And and uh, you know like the same with Beetleborgs, we would just try anything. You know, at some point you just kind of run out of storylines and you just try all sorts of things. So I would uh, pitch some ideas, and and the producer would say, "Great, let's do that." You know, it's so it was a a fun show because I got to experiment as a filmmaker. Um, in many ways, I could try just about anything I wanted. And, you know, if I wanted Steadicam or Crane, it was there. And, you know, there were all kinds of things that uh, that I could do. Um, and even though it was a, a fairly uh, um, low budget show, um, we had everything we needed, I think, you know, if you were a creative independent filmmaker to make the, the make those, those things stretch, you know, it was a, a really nice sets and, um, a lot of really wonderful craftspeople working on that that show. Oh yeah, the sets are incredible. I I love the interior at Hillhurst especially. Oh, it's oh, gorgeous. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. such a such a shootable set and so flexible to you know with all the passageways and things and you were able to you know make a lot of use of it and it had a lot of different levels and it had an upstairs you know landing and things so you could get all these really crazy interesting angles and chases. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of, like you said, tropes to Beetleborgs that, you know, the speeded up motion chases with the monsters was always had to have one of those per episode. And, you know, the kind of camera that was always sort of swimming and canted angles and mm -hmm. things like that. You know, the, the camera was always on a jib arm and moving constantly. It was never, a, I don't think it was ever on a tripod, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't recall many yeah. static shots. <laughs> no, no, we're not. There's a lot of a lot of mo crazy movement and visuals, and it was, you know, it had a lot of CGI for its time. I know that in the early days, the the Flabber character was really inspired by uh, and what we did with him. Um, there was a movie that had just come out, which really kind of pushed the envelope with character effects called The Mask with Jim Carrey. Aha! Uh -huh. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we, we basically just had that company do a whole bunch of flabber shots um for us and, and we actually sent billy uh, somewhere to northern california to do a full scan you know which was new they'd just done it to schwarzenegger for some movie and this company put him in a booth and did a full it was very early on did a full body scan of him so that we could have a fully cg flabber to you know manipulate that's so cool that's awesome yeah can you remember any specific scenes that you uh, really appreciated having that CG flabber? Um, can't remember any specific scenes, but it was always like, you know, anytime you wanted to do something where he could stretch or, or like his eyes, you know, more, or his yeah. eyes pop out, you know, you could, could do that. And then, you know, I, I'd plan out, you know, you know, 25, 30 shots for the episode and then those would get approved and then we'd shoot it with those in mind or find in-camera ways to do it. Cause you couldn't just have a hundred shots. And, and then 
it really ballooned with near the end of the season we had you know like episodes that we could spend a little more money on like the the shadow right. one because we knew that they would generate additional revenue from the vhs so i got to do some really big battle sequences and close down streets in santa paula and have more stuntmen and you know explosions and cars and things like that uh, that we could do you know um so we, we we would spend a little more money on those big action sequences uh um once in a while a couple times per year so did you guys it sounds like you guys had had pretty much you know as long as you followed with the uh the fight footage and whatever monster you got you had relative free reign with how you wrote the scripts did you have like a uh like when you started filming you know in the earlier episodes did you know that there was an end goal you had to get to the shadow borg episodes or was it pretty much episode by episode it was there were there was a head writer and she was kind of overseeing the whole arc of the series. And so there would be, you know, they were, she and, and the producer, um, Bob, were, were working out all of that. And they were really good at that. And then I was kind of like, I did a little bit of writing, but I didn't do a lot of writing. I maybe did half a dozen scripts over two years, just because sometimes there would be an opportunity to do a script and, and uh, they needed a script fast, and and uh, I knew the characters and the show so intimately I could write a script in a weekend, and and I could get it out. And then they would over, they would go through it and make notes and say, let's try and work this in or do that, and and uh, and then I would you know generate the script. But you know I would when I tried to do scripts, it was usually mine weren't in service of the grander arcs of the show. They were like one offs you know, that I had a cool idea for. Right. Like I did one where, which was kind of fun. And I ended up not directing it because I just didn't want to direct my own scripts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was an episode where, you know, how the monsters go back into the comic book is kind of a convention. You know, they send them back to the comic book. And in the episode I wrote, uh, Drew goes back into the comic book. So the whole episode was him in comic book world and I had designed it in my head with the guy in the office next door that it would that Drew would be live action and everything else around him would be animated like comic book characters. And so they literally built this giant green screen set and he was in the green screen and then all the other characters, you know, the backgrounds were all like from comic books and they would do scenes where he's jumping from one comic book frame into the next and yeah. across the page and stuff. And, that was really unique and interesting visually. And so that was an example of something where the, you know, the, the kids were like excited because if they just have to run into Hillhurst every time and, and mm -hmm. say Beetle Blast, they, they kind of used to get bored. But when you give them something different to do, they go, oh, that's cool, you know. And uh, so I did that. And I wrote an episode where one of Flavor's spells body switches the personalities of the Magnivores and the kids. So the kids are in the magnivores' bodies and the magnivores are in the kids' bodies. So the kids all had to act like the magnivores and then they were dubbed later. So each of the suit actors would coach their reciprocal link of how to do the hand movements and how broad to do it. And they all had fun trading personalities for an episode. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I, think that's a, I think that's in season one. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, because it's Noxic and Typhus and... So do you still keep in touch with any of the production staff? I mean, obviously, you know, there are so many episodes. 
Um, you've directed what a quarter or half of them. Like you were, I think you've directed, directed the most episodes. The, I can't remember how many, but I think like twenty-five. I think I directed. It would have to be a, a it would have to be a factor of three. Oh, <laughs> so twenty-one. Go no. by three, so it's it's like twenty-seven or or thirty or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I I think I ended up directing the most episodes across the two years. Yeah. Uh, it would be, I'd have to check the IMDb, but I think if you're listed first, that you're the, the one with the most episodes. That's the way IMDb do, does it. Oh, okay. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I had fun doing it and and I would come in on schedule and, you know, it was a, a, somebody who, who understood the, you know, the dynamic of it and, and had fun. And so that was a really, you know, fun time in my career because it was, it was experimenting and I was doing like really dark independent you know, feature films and oh, like the bartender and like bartender was from that period, and and so yeah, so I would do that, and then you know, while I was editing bartender, I'd go to set. It was like you know, I'd get no sleep, and then I'd have these this weird wacky kids show that I'd be directing, and then I'd go back <laughs> to R rated, you know, Sundance, you know, hopeful, yeah, just real piece, you know, yeah, right? yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd go back and forth from from those two worlds at that period. So um, it was a re- it was a very refreshing thing to be able to go do that show and and the environment at that at that set was really good because, like I said, a lot of the people who worked on it were very family oriented and you know Bob Hughes who was the the producer and the main creative force the main creative was mm-hmm. you know had a really great vision for the show and he was he had a lot of fun and and um, he knew how to make a television show and and was a filmmaker himself and a director so he he could he would just trust in the director to uh you know he wasn't micromanaging on set or anything he was just like you know he'd watch dailies at lunch and like yeah that's cool you know or try some of this or you know and he was just very supportive and if you you know you did something fun or interesting or different he was very supportive so it was it was a great place to uh, to work that's awesome. And That's I, always I, good to know. I feel like I can enjoy a show more when they're when the creators are like, "Oh yeah, it was total, you know, fun to work on. It wasn't all stressful." Like, I, I could see how a show like this would get kind of crazy really fast, especially with all the logistics of shipping, like you were saying, shipping the costumes back and forth and all the weird shooting. And, and yeah, because there was like lots of really you know strange props and action. That yeah, devise, yeah. choreograph all these these really intricate little sequences and then you have kids and you're like it's like five o'clock we gotta go gotta go you got one more shot <laughs> right yeah. like, it's like you know they're literally it's like a social worker with a stopwatch like telling you <laughs> you know it's like if you can start the take before the stopwatch goes you get to finish the take you know with the kid so i would literally never stop the camera sometime just to keep the kid you know between takes right because yeah. if you stopped the camera the kid would have to leave you know so there were just you know you have to follow, you know, child labor laws and all that. So, right. Um, yeah. But and all was, of that, I mean, Beetleborgs has such a like unique dynamic to it and being that it's sort of one half, you know, Japanese monster of the week. And on the other hand, you kind of have this universal monsters yeah, and a monster was, menagerie haunted house. Yeah. And it, I, it, yeah. It was crazy. I think, I think, you know, I think the, I don't know the genesis of it, but I think it was, uh, you know, it, it happened long before I was involved or maybe even Bob and, and he would know better. But I think that all came from Haim Saban and Shuki Levy and those guys were like, I want, uh, you know, 
you know, Universal Monsters and then some Japanese, and they just, you know, they just had crazy vision for this show and everyone's like, okay. And you never thought this at all, you know, all these disparate, uh, different tonal things could work, but, you know, the, the house monsters became very popular. And I know that as the season went on, they, 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 they were minimized in the beginning. And then um, you started writing more for them because the, the sort of slapstick, you know, three the whole model is kind of a three stooges kind of visual energy to them so we would kind Mm -hmm. of play them you know very broad and very three stooges um because kids like broad and so there was definitely a you know a definite um purposeful manner to all the the very sort of slapsticky nature of of the of the monsters and and they were you know they were clearly these universal monsters. And I remember, you know, right. the, the licensing people were like, well, you can't call it Dracula and you can't call it, I remember that, you know, so they came up <laughs> with these other names. So there was absolutely no way they would, would be sued by Universal Studios for stealing Dracula, you know. You're right. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, and it does say that they're staying power because we started off in the earlier episodes um i believe if we went back and listened to them we could probably hear ourselves kind of questioning you know it's this metal metal heroes show and we've got these universal monsters started and as you go throughout the episodes i'm pretty sure you can hear us starting to say that they're becoming our favorite part of each episode we're asking oh yeah with the monsters of illhurst yeah, yeah, the show would have been half of what it was without Frankenbean. <laughs> yeah, and they would write more for them, and then you'd end up with like backstory on them, and each one had their own episode. There was a, I did one episode with Frankenbeans where he has like a little, a little Frankenbeans that shows up like a mini me version of the Austin Powers movies that come out. So I said, oh, let's do a mini me Frankenbeans. <laughs> yeah, the kid with Frankenbeans's makeup was in the show, and I don't remember it too well. And there was, you know, there were different little. There was like a, I think uh, we did one where the mummy had, mums had a a, uh, a girlfriend, you know, so there was a female mummy or he had an identical twin or something. And so each of them had their own sort of um, episode where they had some backstory introduced, you know? Yeah. Um, which was was always uh, uh, fun uh, to do. And, and uh, I did the, the first episodes, I, I do remember this, the first episodes I did um, early in the, in the season when I came on, they'd already done maybe three or six. I can't remember how many of them. And I think the first round I did was somewhere in the first 10. And it was the episode where um, Wolfie, Wolfgang was introduced. So I was to do the episode where Wolfgang was introduced because he wasn't part of the original House Monsters. Right. And right. so I remember meeting um, Frank, who played Wolfie, and he was like there and uh, Bob said, there's this, this, you know, the stunt guy that's worked with us for, for, you know, many years on VR troopers and stuff. And I think he'd be great to play this, this uh, Wolfgang character. And he's got like a very broad and fun meaner. So I went down and met Frank and, and uh, his son was with him and his son ended up being Drew's double on season one. So oh, cool. <laughs> at this, like I said, it was like a family affair. I was going to so, say you, you really right. weren't just a family. Yeah. Show. So so Frank and and Johnny would would uh, um, would be on set working together every day. You know, That's so it was awesome. really it was really cool. And and uh, and then like like Frank and and that family became very dear friends and still are. You know, I watched the kids grow up and 
and uh, Frank and his wife are still great friends and we, we hang out. And um, the DP of that show, Jim Mathers, who's president of the Digital Cinema Society, um, became a you know, great collaborator and shot two, two of my features since and countless TV shows that I can't remember, you know, all the stuff we worked on together. But he shot yeah. a film I did called Break and mm -hmm. he did a movie uh, a couple years ago called The Windigo very innovative cameraman and, and we just have a really good working relationship. So a lot of really great um, uh, career and relate, you know, friend friendships and uh, you know, working relationships grew out of that, uh, those two years on, on Beetleboards. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, you mentioned Windigo. I'm, I'm excited to see that movie. Um, do you, I, on IMDb, it has it listed as in post-production. Do you have any idea when it might yeah, be releasing? We, or? Um, we don't. It's, it's in post-production now, and things were stalled by uh, some financing things and by um, the virus. Oh, right. So right, we yeah. will be back into editing, I think, June, July. Well, the editing's done. We just have to do some sound and music, and yeah. uh, then it'll be... I don't know where it'll be. It's, it's an independent film, so it will be sold and you know may end up on netflix or may get a theatrical deal more than likely you know the the silver lining for us on that movie or on that company's movie is that you know before it was a very you know crowded marketplace to sell in and now there's you know if you have a movie that's in the can and you just have to post it you know the streamers are are uh, you know anxious for content original yeah. content so right. we'll we'll probably do better on the sale and and get a a higher profile sale in this summer than it would have had there been no virus. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see that. That looks excellent. So. Yeah, it's a good piece. And we had some really great, like I said, really great creature designers on it. And uh, yeah, um, the, the suit and stuff was all made in Toronto at a shop up there. Some people worked on shape of water and some other pictures oh, up there. And, cool. and uh, you know, the suit performer from Windigo had, had worked on some of Guillermo's stuff. Um, you know, who created, you know, the movement of the Windigo and, and, and Troy, Troy James. And so there's a lot of, and a wonderfully talented Native American cast, um, you know, because it's all, that's what I liked about it. And why I was, when I was drawn to it was because it wasn't just a bunch of, you know, uh, privileged white kids in a cabin getting killed off. It was, <laughs> right. <laughs> it was, it was like, you know, it was a diverse cast and it, it had, uh, you know, it was based in legend and, you know, we shot it, uh, you know, on location in Michigan and, you know, had, you know, Native American musicians on set and we had, uh, you know, because the Windigo is an evil spirit. So we literally saged the set with elders and, and it was so a cool. really great experience, you know, uh, and the, the cast was so fantastic. So I, I look forward to people being able to see it finally because um, it's taken a lot of time. Look forward to, to seeing it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, there's a, one of our uh, usual podcast um, allies uh, <clears throat> is usually with us, uh, but couldn't be today. Um, but he'll be thr thrilled to hear all of that because he's all about the uh, kind of preservation of that, that Native American culture and trying to, you know, it, it's, really, it's really cool that you're uh, trying to be, you know, sensitive to all of that. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we had I mean, the, the two leads, you know, the, the two kids, uh, Fievel Stewart and Marco Fuller are just wonderful Native American actors and pleasure to work with. And 
and uh, you know they do have tribal affiliations, and it's all you know they're very uh, very about their cultures, and and we were even though we're making a horror film and it's entertainment, we were still very you know respectful of the the cultural aspects of the of the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool. It's it's awesome to to look through kind of your uh, your filmography and see the uh, uh, just kind of how diverse your talent has been going from you know shows like beetleborgs and mystic knights and land of the lost and uh um things like that and then going into uh uh you know reenactments of murder mysteries and yeah it it, it all it's like it's like phases you know it's like you do in hollywood you do one thing and then all of a sudden you get called to do that a lot so like i started with a disney channel movie out of film school that i did called the legend of firefly marsh and it was kind of kids oriented so that led into all this kid stuff in the 90s and then somebody was a friend was producing you know a a a show like a you know a cop show with reenactments and said can you make it look like a movie and i said sure i i don't know how to do anything else so (laughs) i'd never done that before so i just shot this stuff like a movie and for one show, it was with Danny Glover and, you know, set up a reenactment unit, like a little film production. And then all of a sudden, like Unsolved Mysteries called and said, we really like what you did on that. Would you come? So then I ended up on Unsolved Mysteries for two years, which then yeah. led to all these other crime shows. And the company was then doing these sort of epic historical things in Europe and Africa. And they said, would you try that? And I did that. So then I got called for all the epic historical Lawrence of Arabia battles with, you know, I was doing things with 1500 Roman soldiers in <laughs> Lithuania, you know, and all this awesome, crazy yeah. stuff that I'd never get a chance to do anywhere else. And so, yeah. so yeah, so it goes through phases. And then, you know, I've, I've ended up back into um, fantasy and horror now with, with Dragonfall and uh, Windigo, you know. Yeah, I was particularly excited by the Unsolved Mysteries because I used to watch that all the time as a kid. Oh, yeah. Reenactments were my favorite part. So I've no doubt seen a few of your episodes with my mom. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they they still, uh, you know, they they don't get solved sometimes. So they keep rerunning and then you keep getting residuals. So uh, (laughs) as long as they don't get solved, they keep running them. So every year I see Unsolved Mysteries Mm -hmm. residuals. but uh, yeah, some of them, one of them got solved like while I was shooting it. So that was a, oh. a crazy episode. So. <laughs> Do they keep the, they uh, keep the episode going when that happens or? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we did like an update and uh, it was, it got solved. I was say, that's, that's practically the best situation that that show could run into. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, we'll keep yeah. going, but thank you so much for uh, all the input. And it's really awesome to hear from you. Yeah, no, happy to, to add to the history of the show. Yeah. Now that it's, you know, kind of, it, it is history. <laughs> right. I was going to say, there's no, uh, there's no 2021 revival we can look forward to. Is there? No, I don't think so. I, don't know. I think it's, uh, I think the, I think it's owned by Disney. Um, mm. I think, what uh, I think Saban sold off all of its IP to Disney um, in some big deal. Right. You know, I remember a few years ago because there was like a, you know, Saban had, and he was a very smart businessman and he had, uh, you know, a lot of um, channels, you know, owned local stations around the country, you know, or, and he bought up Fox Kids and, you know, he'd amassed an outlet and 
if you're starting a new network, you know, or a new cable system, you have to have channels. And I think at the time they were doing, Disney was going to start ABC Family and they needed a number of markets. So you need channels to go going. And the only way to do it was to buy up a chunk of channels and Saban owned a chunk of channels as I come to understand it. And, and they just bought him out of everything. And, and he ended up, you know, doing quite well selling off all the, the assets and the channels and everything. So I think Beetleboards and Power Rangers and that were ended up in that deal and they may very well still be owned by the, the, the IP may very well still be owned by um, Disney. Yeah. Unless it's changed hands, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I know every now and then somebody will, will bring up, especially with 2017, they had the Power Ranger reboot movie, and I, I think they may be working on another one. And they like, you know, when are we are we going to see Beetleborgs? It's like, guys, I don't think I don't think there's a market for that right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that. I mean, they may have had its time. I don't know if there's a a, uh, a remake to be had, right? Know, <laughs> yeah, or a reboot of uh, of Beetleborgs, especially with all those crazy monsters and stuff, you know, that are quite obviously universal. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, I know for, for a little bit it was, uh, uh, I think it was beating Power Rangers in the ratings for a bit, because I think that's when Power Rangers Turbo was going, and that I think that was kind of a low point for for the old. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, it, uh, I think it was doing, because uh, if I remember right, Power Rangers was the lead-in, and then we were second, it's either like 3 or 3.30 or something like that. I think it was like three and three thirty in the afternoon when it was on, something like that. Yeah. But it was it was a big deal at at, at that point because I remember going into restaurants and stuff. I remember standing in a line at a uh, my favorite like hot dog hamburger place here in the valley, and there were kids in the in the front of the line, you know, in front of me, and they just kept singing the damn Beetleborg song. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I cannot escape this song. <laughs> we did like a music video of it oh and yeah yeah in the cemetery and and when you're doing a music video you put the thing on playback all day and it was just like my brain was, <laughs> was beetleborgs fluid oh, man so did, did you work on the on the music video a bit then i take it a bit yeah i did some sequences for it and then somebody else did sequences for it and um you know so the music's playing and playing and playing so we did you know it would be like, hey, we need some shots for this music video. And, they, you know, and I was on that set that day and we did that. And, and they did some more on a Saturday in the cemetery. But it was just it was just the song over and over and over. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that, that gets graining pretty fast. Uh... Yeah, I mean, those Saturday morning shows, their songs were, you know, just silliness. You know, the Beetleborg song with the rap. and Oh, you know, yeah. Uh, and so they all had to explain you know, the song always had to explain the plot you right know? and just like land of the lost was the same that song was just like crazy it's like the lyrics were like <laughs> you know, like some tyrannosaurus could be hungry for us you know <laughs> it was just nuts that uh land of the lost that was a remake of a show from like the 70s is that right yeah i used to watch it as a kid in the 70s that's awesome that's really and, cool. And I got to direct the reboot in the '90s with uh, Timothy Bottoms, you know, and Timothy Bottoms—he's yeah. awesome. I mean, he was like, you know, the Last Picture Show, you know, and he's like this great '70s actor. So it was fun to to work with him. Um, and then, of course, kids and 
people in monsters outfits and then one of the characters was played by you know a suit performer who had done all the planet of the apes movies and so that was that was fun and so that show you know had uh quite a bit of uh of uh, you know visual effects and things and and that was another one and then it got remade as a movie and yeah and, you know uh, my friend brad directed the movie you know so it was kind of a funny funny thing well, yeah, but it was obviously the movie was very different tone from the the 70s uh, right the 70s show was dark the 70s land of the lost and then ours was a little more family friendly the mm-hmm. 90s mm-hmm. you know the slee stacks actually talked so they were a little more less menacing i think than when they used to yeah <laughs> hits, you know and then uh and then when brad did it it just become became an all-out comedy you know right yeah yeah that's awesome i i remember watching that uh land of the lost show a little bit when i was a kid so that, that's really cool yeah did two we did two seasons of that and that was it you know yeah <laughs> that, that one was only two all these shows ran only two seasons so you know um yeah. these kids just Except for Power Rangers, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah. As long as long as they can keep pulling in that uh, footage from Japan, I, I don't know when that'll. Uh, I think they've <laughs> they've hit their stride on that, and they're just going to keep churning them out. Uh, no, th- this has been awesome, and and thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, this is really, you know, we're not professionals by any means, but but we've really enjoyed this, and and uh, uh, you know, thank you for for sitting and talking Sharing to your us. Time. And, yeah. Do you have anything that you'd want to promote? Uh, any socials or anything that you care people to see? Or uh, yeah, you can just say you know people can find me on Instagram at Gabe Creates. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I actually posted a Beetleborgs uh, photo last night. You know, just because uh, we were going to do this, so I thought oh, I'll put that up tonight. And nice. so there's, there's a Beetleborgs photo and something that people don't get to see very often. It's a shot of the uh, house monsters with their heads off. Oh, cool. Awesome. Oh, that's so awesome. Example, you'll see that. Yeah. Those people, you know, I don't think you ever see that usually. It was just a, a very hot day. <laughs> we were doing exteriors. Everybody took oh, their yeah. Out, you know, so that's so cool. Well, very cool. Uh, do you, have, uh, you said you were working on a, on a script right now, but in that, uh, Wendigo's, uh, plan to come out. Do you have anything that's, that's come out recently or that's, uh, uh slotted to come out that you want to, uh, plug or, or send people yeah, towards just this, yeah this this movie dragonfall should be going into production as soon as the virus allows and and uh, windigo should be out you know as soon as we can can finish the sound and music yeah well awesome. hey we will be we will be watching like hawks for both of those that's awesome great all right absolutely well, take care. pleasure uh, meeting you guys and, and good luck with your show absolutely. hey you as well yeah, you thank too. you and you as well yeah yeah thank you so much Take care. Bye-bye. 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 All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this very special episode of the Big Bad Beetle Bros. Huge shout-out to Gabe Torres for joining us for this. Check him out at Gabe Creates on Instagram. He's got some awesome shots from on the set of Big Bad Beetleborgs, as well as a lot of other projects that he's worked on in the past and that he's working on right now. We will be keeping an eye out for his upcoming films, and uh, as they go into production and leave production, we will make sure that you guys know where you can find those, uh, because I'm sure you guys are just as interested in watching those as we are. Huge shout out to our two patrons this month, Jacob Bingham, of course, always a pleasure, and Drew Griffin. Be sure and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 
at Big Bad Beetle Bros and Beetle Bros Pod. Check us out on YouTube at Big Bad Beetle Bros. We've got five episodes abridged and uploaded now thanks to Mr. Drew Griffin himself. If you guys haven't already, please be sure to like and subscribe. Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else amazing podcasts are uh, uploaded. And if we're not on a service that you use, let us know in our email at bigbadbeetlebros at gmail.com. And, you know, we'll try our best to get on there. Again, huge thanks to you guys for following us on this journey for a year already. We cannot wait to dive into the Curse of the Shadow Borg. And, again, thank you so much to Mr. Gabe Torres. I've been Cam. I'm Nick. My name's Aaron. And we are the Big Bad Beetle Bros. Thank you, guys.